Uh, we're going to continue our study in the life of Moses. This is the 10th that we've done, and uh, we're going to just look at a few verses, as most of these I've been taking chapters, uh, but uh, this morning, just verses 17 to 22 of chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. There are printed bulletin uh, outlines. If you didn't get one, feel free to get up and grab one now. And there are uh, full manuscripts of the message as well as all of them, uh, audio and printed, going back now 26 years worth. So you can access those on the church website as well. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. We live in a culture that has become consumed, I think, with time-saving devices. Uh, Any of you remember dial-up internet? I mean, you know, it took forever to get online, and then you hoped it didn't cut out on you. Now on my phone, I get instant updates of breaking news around the world when they, when it happens. Uh, there's just a wealth of information available to us that didn't used to exist. I can say, hey Siri, what's the population of Paris? And instantly I know the population of Paris. Um, You know, a little over a century ago, Hudson Taylor, when he went from England to China, spent four months on a ship going down around the Cape of Good Hope, all the way up through the Indian Ocean and over to China. Four months, of course, to send a letter back to England, four months to get a letter back to China, and now I can text or uh, FaceTime with my daughter on the other side of the world and instantly know how she's doing, what's going on in her life. And so, because we live in that kind of world, we naturally expect God to work in the same way. I mean, I read books on time management and how to get things done more efficiently, and life is short, and so I want God to work now when I need something done. And, you know, it's unimaginable to me that God would be slow or inefficient in accomplishing his purpose. 
Now, from his eternal perspective, he's not slow or inefficient. He knows what he's doing, and he always accomplishes his purpose right on schedule. But from our time-bound perspective, God's ways really are often slow, inefficient, might even say kind of wasteful in the way he does things. And if you want to be faithful to the Lord and his cause, you have to have a paradigm shift from the way our world operates and the way God operates. In Isaiah 55, God says, my ways aren't your ways. And we need to get in line with his ways. It's especially important because there are many Christians in our day who claim that God wants you to be instantly healthy, wealthy, and spiritually victorious. You just claim it by faith. That's your right. It's your responsibility. And they deny that any sickness or suffering or pain or poverty ever come to us from the Lord's hand. And they say, if you're sick, don't admit it. That's a negative confession. You have to claim your healing by faith. I had a a former roommate of mine who got into this movement, and he came to visit me once, and I noticed he wasn't wearing his Coke bottle thick glasses. And he also seemed a little unsure of things. And I brought it up to him, and he said, well, the Lord's healed my sight. And he drove that way, and he couldn't see from here to you. Uh, And I thought, oh my goodness, this is a dangerous teaching. Um, But these folks say, if you're poor, envision living in a mansion and claim it by faith. You know, that's your divine right. And if you're struggling with problems, that's not right. That's not God's will, so... Either get slain in the spirit or speak in tongues and instantly you will have victory in the Lord. Uh, And by the way, if you'll send a nice check to the TV preacher who's saying all of this, he'll send you a free prayer cloth and you can see many miraculous answers to your prayers through that. Now, all of that is just plain false teaching. And it appeals to the flesh. Because, let's face it, if your choice is instant victory or a lifetime of struggle and difficult battle, who wouldn't choose the instant victory? Well, God wouldn't, for one. Uh, If you read the Bible, God here in our story has just delivered Israel from 400 years of being in, in Egypt. Much of it was spent in horrible slavery 400 years is a long, long time. Go back to 1600. You know, that gives you the perspective. They've been in slavery. Was God slow about his promise? No, he told Abraham, your descendants will be slaves in Egypt for 400 years before I deliver them and bring them into this land. Genesis 15, God promised that. But put yourself in the place of the Jews living in slavery. And you live your whole life crying out, God, this is tough. This is hard. I don't know if I can make bricks another day with that guy lashing me with his lash and yelling at me. God, deliver us. 
And he lived and died. And his kids lived and died. And their kids lived and died. And 400 years went by before God answered that prayer. And now the Lord's plan is take those people and give them the promised land. And if Moses had checked on his Google map, he would have seen that it's right up the coast. At that time, there was no Suez Canal. There was no river to cross, no sea to cross. Just go right up the coast. It's a straight shot. But God, rather than doing that, leads his people around by the way of the wilderness and the Red Sea or Sea of Reeds as some translate it. And in this case, he is nice enough to give us his reason. Often God doesn't tell us why he does these things, but in verse 17, he says the the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, ironically, in just a few chapters, chapter 17, they're going to encounter war, but God knew at this point they're not ready for that. And so God leads them by this somewhat circuitous route that I'm calling the scenic route to the promised land. Now, I'm using scenic in a facetious way because while I've never been in that part of the world, uh, if they want you to travel there, they shouldn't show pictures of the Sinai Desert. You know, it's just not Hawaii or uh, Yosemite or anything. It's just this barren, rocky, hot desert. But that was God's way for his people. And the lesson applied to us is that God's way of dealing with us is to take us on that scenic route because God's purpose is to teach us to trust and glorify Him. Now, first we're going to look at God's way, and then we're going to look at God's purpose. And God's way of dealing with us is to take us on this scenic route. Now, We used to live in Southern California. I'm glad that I escaped from there. But um, when when we lived in Southern California, sometimes we had to go up to the Bay Area, Northern California. And you can go a couple of ways, but sometimes we like to take the scenic route. The scenic route is at San Luis Obispo. You turn and go up Highway 1 right along the coast, and it's fabulous, fabulous views. The fastest way to get there is take Interstate 5. You shoot right up the center of the the, uh, state. But it's hot and it's boring. And so sometimes we prefer to go the, the scenic route. But there are four things about that scenic route that are true of the scenic route God takes all of us on. The first thing is it always takes longer to go the scenic route. Uh, Several hours longer. You know, I mean, to shoot right up I-5 doing 70 or 80 miles an hour there, you can get there pretty quick, but to go the scenic route takes many hours more. In Moses' case, it would have taken the people under two weeks to go right up straight along the coast, and they'd be in the land of Canaan, but God takes them on this detour through the scenic route in the wilderness 40 years to get there. 40 years. And the Bible is clear that God doesn't seem to be in the big hurry that we're often in. You go back to the book of Genesis and God chooses a man named Abraham. 
when he's 75. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham thinks, great. Let's see, nine months, we'll have a son. Abraham is a hundred when God gives him the son of the promise, Isaac. His wife is 90, well past childbearing years. And keep in mind, God's promise to Abraham was, and I'm not just going to give you a son, but I'm going to make of you a great nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. Well, all right, Abraham dies with one son of the promise, and surely Abraham's son Isaac's going to have a big, huge family, right? Guess what? Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is barren until Isaac prays. And then God gives them finally twin sons, Esau and Jacob, and God says, no, not Esau. Jacob is my son of my choosing. Jacob deceives his father out of the birthright, and his brother's going to kill him, so he has to escape for his life back to the homeland. So now the heir to the promise is not even in the land that God has promised, And there he meets Uncle Laban, and he likes Uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he agrees to work for Rachel for seven years to be his wife, and he gets deceived, and it ends up being 14 years. And he's up there probably for 20 years or more before he finally makes it back to the land of promise. I can't go through it all, but he has a slew of problems in the land, the least, not the least of which is that his Older sons sell their younger brother into slavery in Egypt. And Joseph goes down to Egypt. And he does the right thing. He resists the seductive attempts of Potiphar's wife. And gets rewarded with a prison term. And so he goes to prison. And uh, you know the story. Finally, uh, he after spending probably the better part of his 20s there, he gets elevated to second in the land. Jacob and all of his family move down there uh, for protection from the famine. And that's where we find them when the book of Exodus opens 400 years later. Uh, You know, 400 years and all those problems isn't exactly the fast track to becoming a great nation. His promise to Abraham. But it was God's way. And as we've seen, the route to the uh, deliverance of Egypt, um, Israel from Egypt wasn't the quick way either. Moses, we read in Acts 7, was a man educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, a man of power in words and deeds. By age 40, he seems raring to go. He tries to make a move to deliver his people, kills the Egyptian taskmaster, And has to flee for his life. And God leaves him out on the backside of the desert there in Midian for the next 40 years. While, meanwhile, God's people, day by day, 40 years more, are slaves in Egypt. You see a similar pattern all through the Bible. David, man after God's own heart, writer of the beautiful hymns, anointed as king as a teenager runs from the mad King Saul through all of his 20s before he finally becomes king at age 30. At the end of the Old Testament, Israel returns from 70 years in captivity in Babylon. The last prophet is Malachi, 
The next book in your Bible is Matthew, but there's 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist coming in Matthew to announce the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus comes and he's God in human flesh. Surely he's raring to go by age 20, right? No, he's about 30 when he becomes or he begins his ministry. And then it only lasts for three years before he's crucified. You get into the New Testament epistles and the Apostle Paul probably is converted in his early 30s. He spends two or three years out in Arabia in the desert. Goes back to his hometown of Tarsus for maybe six to eight more years before Barnabas calls him over to Antioch and eventually then the modern mission movement begins as they take the gospel to places west. Paul is really at a place of maximum impact for his ministry when he gets incarcerated in Caesarea in the land of Palestine there. And... um, you know, and to read the story, it almost sounds like, huh? Really? Because the governor, Felix, leaves Paul in prison because he wants a bribe. Can't God get Paul out of there? And then Felix leaves office and he leaves Paul in prison because he wants to please the Jews. And so Paul can't get to Spain where he wants to take the gospel. Well, he finally gets to Rome, thanks to being a prisoner, and he's incarcerated in Rome and spends more time there in confinement. You know, if you've ever read a history of the church, if you've ever read a missionary biography, you know that the spread of the gospel has not been quick and easy. It has taken time, and there have been setback after setback, and missionaries go and they die and and face problems on the mission field all kinds of problems political problems health problems problems working with other missionaries support problems it goes on and on you know and so the great commission has taken a lot longer than if god maybe had hired a time management specialist back in the first century right the scenic route takes longer The second thing about the scenic route is it's not the most efficient way to get there from our perspective. It doesn't always make sense. I mean, think about it. Why didn't God choose Abraham when he was 25 instead of 75? Give him Isaac, you know, age 30. We can get this program going to get this great nation thing happening. Bless the nations and all of that. Think of all those wasted years that... Didn't happen. Why leave Joseph in that dungeon for most of his 20s when he could have been elevated to second in the land as a reward for resisting Potiphar's wife? You know the story of Joseph. The cupbearer is there. Joseph interprets his dream. As he goes out the door of the prison to be restored to Pharaoh, Joseph says, remember me. And the next word is the cupbearer forgot. He forgot. Couldn't God remind him? Well, God does remind him finally when Pharaoh has a dream. But you know what Genesis 41 says? Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. 
I mean, isn't Joseph praying, God, get me out of here? Why couldn't it have been this cupbearer gets restored? Now it happened at the end of two full weeks that Pharaoh had a dream. Now it happened at the end of two full months, at the end of two full years. Or you come to Moses, why leave him out in the desert for 40 years? I mean, seminary's only three or four years. Surely he'd be ready to go. And, and meanwhile, God's people could be delivered from their bondage in Egypt. And then why not God take them directly into the promised land? Well, we read, maybe the people will see war. Well, God could take care of that. Just strike all the Canaanites with a plague. You know, they all drop dead. Israel moves into the land. All the homes are built. Everything's taken care of. And uh, they don't have to fight the Canaanites. Or why not get rid of faithless King Saul and put the man after God's own heart and power sooner? Why not send the forerunner and the Messiah right after Israel returns to the land? And why not have the Lord begin his ministry at age 20 and live to a ripe old age before he dies. Think of all the more he could have accomplished. See, from a human perspective, God's way is kind of inefficient. But of course, not from God's way. Or Paul. Why not have Paul released from Felix and get the gospel to Spain? Scenic route is slower. It's not very efficient. Thirdly, the scenic route is always the most difficult route. Sometimes when we used to drive up Highway 1, they would have had a mudslide and they barely had the road plowed and so you're driving over bumpy stuff and slick road just to get there. I saw recently the whole highway was closed with a giant landslide just this last winter. Um, And even when it's open, there's curves. Last summer, we had the privilege of going and visiting Gary and Faith Fit in Maui. And uh, have any of you been to Maui? And you know the road to Hannah, right? The road to Hannah is the most scenic road in Maui. And I saw a t-shirt, and it said, The road to Hannah, turn left, turn right, repeat 620 times. And that's not exaggerating. There are 620 hairpin turns, 59 one-lane bridges in 52 miles of road. And so if you can see the scenery, it's nice, but you're trying to watch the road. It's called the divorce highway because, you know, it's kind of tense on your marriage. Oh, look out, you know, there's the... Boy, it's quite a road. But everyone agrees, it's the most scenic road on Maui. Now, as we've seen, God's way to the promised land was not the easiest way to get there. Uh, It would have been much easier, again, if God had promised Abraham a son. Six months later, he walks in and Sarah's beaming, saying, Guess what? I'm pregnant. You're going to have that son would have been easier if Jacob had said, you know, I'll work seven years for Rachel. And Laban had said, eh, seven weeks is plenty. But he was there for 20 years. Would have been easier for Joseph after he resisted Potiphar's wife if God had said, you're good, and put him second in the land instead of rewarding him with years in the Egyptian dungeon. And you can go right through the list. Moses, David, Paul, all of them. 
why didn't these men just claim their deliverance by faith? Were they lacking in faith? No, they're heroes of the faith. You know, why didn't they just name it and claim it? Because God's way is always the scenic route. It's not our way. Scenic route takes longer. It's not the most efficient. And it is the most difficult. But the scenic route is also the most beautiful in the long run. And that's why we take it. It's worth the time. If you have the time, it's worth the inefficiency. It's worth all the hassles. And nothing is as beautiful. If you've been up <clears throat> Highway 1 in California, you know the breathtaking views compared to that straight shot up I-5 just doesn't compare. And the reason that the scenic route that God takes you on is the most beautiful is this. God is with you on the route. And God's presence and God's provision and God's protection is worth all the problems that you get on the scenic route. You know, if Israel had traveled just straight up into Canaan, even if God had taken out the Canaanites, they would have settled into a comfortable life in the land and they would have missed 40 years of camping with God in the wilderness. And that's what they got. 40 years that they saw God every morning provide manna miraculously to feed them and water out of the rock. And they had this pillar of the cloud to protect them by day and to guide them, and fire by night to give them warmth and light. You know, the logistics of providing for two million people in that barren wilderness are pretty overwhelming. If you lined them up 50 abreast, they would have stretched 40 miles into the wilderness. It would have taken about 30 boxcars of food, 300 tank cars of water every day for their journey, but which in the long run would be more beautiful to just the easy way into Canaan? Homes are empty. Let's move in. We got it, you know, and, and uh, all of that. And you settle down with a nice home in suburbs of Jerusalem with a two-donkey garage and everything's fine. Or 40 years with the Lord every day, providing for your need, never missing a day, seeing his faithfulness and his loving care. So God's way, then, is to take us on this longer, inefficient, more difficult route, but it's more beautiful in the long run. And what's he trying to do? Well, our text shows us that his purpose for taking us on the scenic route is to teach us to trust him and to glorify him. The basic aim of the fallen human race is to be independent from God. Or at least to help God out. You know, you turn to all the world's religions, including some that claim to be Christian, and the way of salvation is the way of works. You help God out. You know, yeah, God does his part, but you do your part. And then finally, you know, you get in. Well, guess who gets the glory? I at least get some of it if I helped out and did it. Uh <clears throat> We all want to direct our own lives, maybe with a little help from God, but, you know, I like to be a self-made man. That's the world's way. And so the thing all boils down to this question, who gets the glory? 
in this process. If God saves us apart from anything we can do, he gets it all. I would be on my way to hell were it not that God intervened. If I can help him, yeah, I can share in it a little bit, you know, in the glory. Or if I can live the Christian life by my own strength, then I, I can take some of the credit. Here's what God says, though, in Isaiah 42, 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another. And so God takes us on the scenic route to break us of our self-dependence. So we put our trust in him and glorify him. Three observations about trusting in the Lord here. First of all, trusting in the Lord requires seeing your own weakness and need, but then at the same time, God's power and God's provision. Now, we're going to see next time how the Lord specifically directed Moses to turn around, lead Israel back into what really is a military trap. They got this large body of water on one side, Uh, mountains so they can't escape to the other sides and here comes the Egyptian army right behind. Now why would God do that? He wanted Israel to see their own utter weakness but that he would provide by parting the water and and delivering them from that army. So they learned their lesson right? Well you keep reading and in chapter 15 they go three days into the wilderness and they find no water. And you, as you're reading through Exodus, you tend to go, okay, big deal. You know, God just parted the Red Sea. He can provide water, but they grumble. And you get in chapter 16, same thing. They grumble. No food, no water. God provides manna. Chapter 17, no water. They grumble. And it's a story of Israel. Chapter 17, they also meet Amalek, an enemy. And, and you have to ask the question, well, why are they having all these problems? I mean, they're the chosen people of God, and, uh, you know, why don't they just claim their deliverance by faith? Well, God brings these problems into his people's lives to teach them to trust him. They're needy. He's the answer to their need. Uh, And he does that with us for his glory. But we don't trust him as we should until we see our own weakness and we see his power and his provision. A second observation is that trusting in the Lord then requires remembering that God always keeps his promise. There's a strange verse at first glance. In Exodus thirteen nineteen, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. And every time I read that, when I read through Exodus, I chuckle. Uh, here's how I picture the scene. Have you ever gone on vacation camping with small children? And all you have is your car. And I've done this. I've been there, done this many times. <clears throat> Even with the top rack, I got this huge pile of camping gear, suitcases, you know, everything you're going to need with little kids on the trip, whether it's pack and play or, you know, 
all the stuff. And then I got this little space. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to get all that into there? It's complicated. Well, here, picture Moses. He's about to lead two million people on a long camping trip in the wilderness. And besides, they're leaving their homes permanently in Egypt. So they're loading the whole nine yards under their wagons. And they just get this wagon cinched down, you know, with maybe, I don't know if they had a tarp or something to make sure it doesn't fall off on the bumpy roads. And somebody goes, uh, what about that, that coffin over there? Coffin? We're taking a coffin with us? Yeah, we got to take the bones of, of Joseph. It was actually a mummy because they mummified Joseph. You ever been in a, in a museum and seen a mummy? So they got this mummy of Joseph, and they got to take it with him. Where are you going to put that on the cart? You know, and so here they go. And, you know, everything is loaded, and they got to find room for Joseph's bones. So you have to ask, well, why did they do that? Well, you go back to Genesis chapter 50, and verses 24 and 25 say, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die but God will surely take care of you. It means literally he's going to visit you. And he's going to bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from uh, here. And so taking this, and this had been passed down now for 400 years, so taking this 400-year-old mummy and putting him on the cart and transporting it back to the land is visible proof God always keeps his promises. That's what he promised, and he's going to do it. But still, that means every time they camped, Moses had to get somebody and say, let's get that coffin off the cart, and they set the coffin down. Oops, time to load up. Let's put the coffin back on the cart. And off they go. I, in Numbers 33, it tells about all the places they camped. And I went there this week and counted them up. And I counted 41 different camping spots in 40 years. I, I can see little kids in, in Israel going, Mom, how come that old man keeps loading that coffin on and off the cart every time we stop? You know, why didn't he just shove it in a cave somewhere? Let's get on with this trip. And if the parents were in the know, they said, let me tell you about our God. Our God is a faithful God. And 400 years ago, he promised, more than that, he promised to Abraham to give him this land. And our forefather Joseph said, God's going to visit you and bring you out. And that's what God is now doing. He's keeping his promises. You know, you can't trust somebody who doesn't keep his word. But if somebody keeps his word consistently, I'm talking a human, you can trust him. Yeah, I've seen that guy. He he keeps his word. Well, our God has never broken a promise in all of human history. He keeps it, but you have to keep in mind, his timing is not our timing. 400 years was a long, long, long time. But that's what God said in Genesis 15. That's what God does in Exodus 13 and 14. And then it's still going to be another 1,400 years from the Exodus until the time when God 
sends his Savior. He promised that back in the garden after the fall. And all those long millennia, and God right on schedule in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. And, and then it's been almost 2,000 years since the crucified and risen Savior ascended as the disciples watched and the angels made a promise. Acts 1.11, they said, This Jesus, who has been taken up with you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have seen him, watched him go into heaven. That's the promise. And Second Peter 3 tells us, in the last days there's going to be scoffers saying, hey, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's gone on just as it has, and he hasn't come. Don't believe him. God always keeps his promises right on his schedule. And he's going to keep that one too. Jesus is coming. And then, a last observation. When we trust in the Lord, he gets the glory, and we get the blessings. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes this point. It says, for by grace, that means you didn't deserve it. You had nothing to do with it. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And in case you're congratulating yourself on your faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one can boast. The only thing we can boast in is God and his grace. He did it. And he gets all the glory. Well, what do we get? We get the blessing. We're saved. Saved from God's judgment as a gift. And in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says the gift includes every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when we trust in the Lord, he gets the glory and we get the blessings. You know, when God's eternal son took on human flesh and came to this earth, God led his son on the scenic route. It was difficult. It's called the way of the cross. He came to die in the place of sinners. That was his mission. And when Jesus began to tell his disciples in Matthew 16, you know, we're going up to Jerusalem and uh, I'm going to suffer a lot at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised again. That didn't compute with the disciples' mindset. They had this vision of Messiah as the king, and he's going to come, and he's going to reign instantly and deal with Rome, and we're going to sit on thrones with him. And so Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Imagine rebuking the Lord. And on that occasion, the Lord gave probably the strongest rebuke he ever gave to any disciple. He said to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter was thinking of it man's way. God was doing it the scenic route, God's way. Some of you this morning might be on the scenic route. Well, we all are. We, you may be at a smooth part in the road, or you may be at one of those bumpy curves where it's pretty tough. It's God's way. It's slow. It's not efficient. It's difficult. But when the Lord is with you, it's the most beautiful. And I know you can testify as I can. 
You never know the Lord's presence like you do when you're in a trial. That's when you really know it, don't you? You cry out, oh Lord God, I need you. And he's there. And so, trust him and give him the glory when he brings you through. That's why he takes us on the scenic route. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you're on a path toward God's judgment. The Bible says that. I didn't make that up. And the Bible says God doesn't judge us for being pretty good people. He judges us because we've all sinned. And he cannot have any sin in his holy presence. And the scary thing is you could die outside of Christ and face eternal judgment. But the good news is this. God sent his son, the Savior, to die on the cross to bear the sins of everyone who looks to him and trusts in him. And no matter how much you've sinned, if you'll trust in Jesus this morning, the Bible assures us God justifies the ungodly by faith alone. I urge you strongly to do that. Dear Lord, if any are here without you, would you work in their hearts the miracle of your grace? Cause them to be reborn that they might Put their trust in you and know you as Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray for your children. We're all on that scenic route. Some of us are in kind of a bumpy, difficult time. And I pray that the presence represented by the cloud and the fire and the manna and the water would be with them that they would know your provision for them in this difficult time, that they would rejoice in your deliverance and glorify you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name.